Hello and welcome to the Drums Leadership Lessons, a podcast that aims to speak to advertising and media professionals from all around the world and find out how they view their management and aim to motivate the people they work with and find out a bit more about the leaders that they have learned from and looked up to. I am Stephen Leptak, editor of The Drum and your host for this series. So, welcome to the Drums Leadership Lessons. Uh, I am here joined by Wendy Clark, the Group Chief Executive, uh, Global uh, Chief, Chief Executive of DBB. Um, thank you for doing this. We're going to be talking about leadership and I'm going to be asking Wendy all about her experience of it. But for the people at home who are listening, from this, uh, listening to this podcast, it's a bit different. I'm doing this live in an Irish bar in the middle of New York which seems a bit of a random curveball for this, but why not? So, and here I showed up. Thank you for showing up. It was the Irish bar that did it, though, wasn't it? Probably. Uh, thank you for being honest. So a quick cheer from the audience, just to prove they're all here and awake. Hi, audience. Woo-hoo! There you go. Doing this live with an audience, this is, uh, this is, uh, this will be interesting. Um, so, uh, Wendy, I always start uh, by asking, what does the word leadership mean to you? Um, I think there are many definitions of leadership. Um, the best one I think I've heard is the careful balance of hope and reality. Uh, that that's what a leader has to do. Right? That you're you're constantly creating hope for your team, uh, but you have to live in a reality that maybe that that hope might be a stretch for sometimes. So um, that's the like go-to definition of leadership to me: the careful balance of hope and reality uh, with an organization. And then I think the other thing that I would reference a lot is that, liber- that leadership is both a privilege and a pressure. And I think a lot of times people like to live into the privilege part of leadership, and you can't leave behind the pressure part of leadership, right? So there's, you, those two are inextricably tied. So those are two go-to references in my mind when I think of what leadership entails in the requires. What do you mean by hope? What, what, uh, can you explain what that Well, element? yeah, I think it's great. Um, you know, leaders to me, I was reflecting, uh, preparing for this today on some of the leaders that have shaped me and I feel I've been fortunate to work for. And one of them was Roy Spence at GSDNM. I spent uh, a period of time working there um, about 20 years ago now. And the thing I learned from Roy was to create inspiration and belief with your team. And he's exceptional at it. And he signs every email tomorrow right at dawn. That's Roy Spence. Right at dawn, you know, like yeah, I want mine too, but I'm going. You know, um, and that's just—I mean, he just—he cre- just oozed inspiration and oozed belief, and and that's a, a job. We have you know eleven and a half thousand employees around the world at DDB, and, and very distinctly, part of my responsibility is to create that inspiration, that belief in what we're doing, that hope for achieving anything and everything, both individually that people want to achieve in their career and then collectively that we want to achieve as uh, an agency. So that's what I mean around hope. I mean, I think there's, look, we're operating in a world that is is pretty tough right now. And so if your job, if the company you work for can be a place that inspires you, that creates belief for you around what you're doing, gosh, wouldn't that be nice? So I, mean, I think that is the role of the leader to, to at every step, try to create that, that question. It's a, what, what you've just said to me strikes me as though you think of your people an awful lot and your staff an awful lot. How, how hard do you find it then to balance company um, priorities with 
such a huge uh, number of people that work for you? Well, the agency, to know the agency business is to know something that it, it's pretty simplistic, mm -hmm. right? So I think about the RPNL versus the PNL and Autocad Coke or other places where I work. It's a very simple PNL. It has employees, it has rent and lease, and then it has expenses. That's it. You put revenue in the top, you take those three things out, and then you get profit at the bottom. So we don't have R&D, we don't have you know, depreciating assets, we don't have factories, we don't have fleet. Think about all the things that can factor into uh, a, a company. It's a very simple business model, which focuses the mind around the people. Right? The, the single lever in a business, in an agency model, is people. And so it, it, is, it has to be everything that you're oriented around, because it is indeed the lever that you have to run the business successfully is type of people you have, the exceptional talent and capabilities they have, the fact that they want to stay with you and grow their careers with you, the fact that you can recruit them and they want to join you, and all this, it is the thing that I spend the most amount of my time on, unquestionably, is people. It has to be. Do you, do you think about that as well, in terms of when it comes to employment, and God knows in New York, finding good talent is really tough and very competitive. Do you think about what it takes to attract people to come and work for you that day? Yeah, constantly, constantly. We, we, and, th and this can take, I mean, the, I've been with DB now, uh, coming on four years in January, uh, and I've been in the global world for uh, coming on two years. And the time that it takes to recruit people, especially executives, is quite a long time. Like it's quite a long courtship, and you know, you, you've got to be like, unwilling to believe that no is the answer you're going to say no. So you call someone initially, or our head of recruiting will call someone, and I'm like, no, no, I'm not interested. I'm like, call again. And I'm like, ah, maybe I'll give them a call. Maybe I'll give them a text. And I think, you know, I mean, the, we have a new chief creative officer starting in North America very shortly, um, Britt Nolan. And he said no 10 times until he said yes. <laughs> you know, but you've got to believe that no is just a yes waiting to happen. You know, and that's just the name of the game. You, I mean, we have lasered in on him as the absolute right person to join our organization, and we just had to persuade him and compel him that he needed to be with us, and, and we got there. But it takes, you've got to be really, really committed. Um, and, and look, I think part of the, the resurgence plan in North America, so I tell this story a lot, when I joined um, in January of 2016, that following can, uh, in June, North America, my region, Zero lines, zero. No short lit, zero. And I came from Coke, where it required two arms to carry our pan lines on our way. We're taking nothing. When you say zero, you mean like really nothing? And really, that created a crisis moment. Honestly, in my first six months, I was like, we will never, ever go to can again and not win lines. And we've gone on a complete trajectory. We obviously went on to hire Ari Weiss, who came and led North America, and now is in the global role. But this most recent can, 2019, the number one performing office in the entire network was in Chicago, four years later. Now we've trained 75% of the leaders in, in North America. So we've been recruiting, bringing new people in, we've created a focus and a vision for what the agency is doing. We've been aggressive about delivering on what our expectation is. And by the way, yes, that's my expectation, but this is a 70-year-old agency with the name Bill Burnback 
in the agency. This expectation was created way before I showed up. And we're just living into the legacy that Doyle Dane Burnback had 70 years ago, and we feel a deal deep responsibility to talk about him. Um, you were talking about one of your exhibitions, but who is it in your career that has most inspired you as a leader, and what did you learn from them? Well, it's, I'm glad you asked. So, so uh, on Sunday when I was preparing, knowing that I had this week, I was reflecting on Lloyd and a couple other leaders who had inspired me, and I texted them um, and told them how much they had inspired me. Because, and I feel like I've told them before, but it, I, I don't think we often tell the people who have shaped us enough that we really appreciate them and how much they've shaped us. So Roy would be one of them. Muntar Kent, who was the CEO of Coke, would be another one. And Ed Whitaker, who was the CEO of AT&T. So those three people whom I worked under for the majority of my career indelibly shaped me, no question. And so I already said why I went Roy. Inspirate, creating inspiration and a belief in your team. There's nothing more Roy taught me how to do it, taught me that it was important. Ed Whitaker, who I worked for at AT&T, is one of the most deep and full listeners I've ever been around. He listens way more than he speaks, which is something that most advertising people don't do. <laughs> and so when he spoke, though, the entire room went right in, like, what's he going to say? Right? It made it, the power it attributed to what he said was incredible. And so people would lean in. And I think to listen fully and to understand fully is an important aspect of leadership. And say, well, my, my team knows, you can, you can send me a compendium on your client and I will read it. I, I learned that from Edward. It's a responsibility of a leader to fully understand the situation and then make a decision. Now, that's hard in the day-to-day -day of a business world and landscape moves very, very quickly and values steep. And so I think you've got to take the things that you really need to understand fully before you make decisions and the things that you already know enough about and you don't necessarily need to. But um, I definitely love that from the leader. He was a powerful leader. And then Muntar Kent is perhaps one of the most um, globally sophisticated thinkers, the most diplomatic people. His, uh, he, his father was a, an ambassador. He's Turkish. He's leading a very global company called Coke. I learned from him the importance of global awareness, global compassion, understanding, uh, and diplomacy. And so if you're going to work at a Coca-Cola, you're going to work at an EDV that has agencies in 100 countries. It is a requirement that you understand the goal, that you make yourself a global citizen and not just operate from where you stand. And those are, those are three. Can you tell us what any of them reply? Did any of them reply? All three of them reply. Right. Actually, completely warmed my heart. Munchar and, see, I don't even call Ed Whitaker, I call him Mr. Whitaker. Because only his direct reports, I reported to someone who reported to him, only his direct reports called him Ed. And he replied to my text and signed it Ed W, and I was like, no, 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 you're Mr. Whitaker. This is not going to work out for me. They all replied, and I, you know, both both Mujar and Sridhar are retired, and, and it just struck me. I think when I'm in my 70s and retired, it would mean a lot to me to hear from someone reminding me of how they shape them. And so they all sent me really lovely and gracious replies. But it's a good reminder to really take enough time to just say thank you and to honor the people who've invested in us over time. Those three people really invested in me. They really believed in me. They 
incredible responsibility, arguably before I deserved it. You know, they bet on me in many senses. And I really felt that it was important to tell those people who bet on me that I honor that bet. What men, you've held roles at agency side and brand side. Does leadership change in any way from the already? Yes. How, Dramatically. How, how did it change from moving from Coke to, to DDE then? Yeah, the, I mean, the single biggest learning in this for me has been resilience. But when you're a client, you don't lose. Um, you create the outcomes and the variables so that you don't lose something. Like, you've got all the controls. And on the agency side, you lose a lot. Um, if we win 30% of the pitches that we participate in, we're winning as much as any agency out there. So by definition, we're losing 70% of our time, which is a horrible reality <laughs> So when I first started this job, and we lose a pitch, and our biz dev people come in, oh, well, they went a different way. Outrageous. <laughs> that is outrageous. Our strategy was great, the work was awesome, the team was perfect. This is the, you know, this is terrible. And I'm like, you know, and then, well, no, I mean, it happens. I mean, you know, they said it did really well, but they found someone else they liked. And, and I just could, I'm unfriending people on Facebook. Dead to me, I'm going to talk to them again. This day, people are like, oh, you've got to call them in six weeks. You know, so, the resilience training of Wendy Carter has been ongoing. Um, and I think I'm a bit better now. Uh, but, but you do, I mean, this, uh, and I think notably to the definition of the bomb podcast around leadership, it's really important that the agency see me get back up. Okay, it's super important. So after a quote unquote loss or something that didn't go away, I try to be very visible, try to be in the office. We'll meet, we'll talk, we'll discuss, just so that people understand we're not going to work through it. And it's okay to be open about it. You know, I'm, I'm bruised by it. I don't like the outcome, but this, we'll get the next one. We've got to get up, move on. This is not our fate, you know, and, um, you know, that happens. That, it's part of the business. Well, it's also part of leadership. I'll let you take a drink as well, but it's so part of leadership that you have to show that you get up and move on so that everyone else knows that they can as well. So how much do you think about when you go into the offices all around the world, people are looking at how you react and talk to them. How, how aware of yourself are you as a leader when you're talking to the rest of the team? I think you have to be aware that the, the thing that over time I've always done and I don't know if someone taught it to me or if I learned it from watching someone else. Um, I, am, I am one person. If, if you run into me at a grocery store on the weekend, you're going to get exactly the same person as you're going to get on this podcast. I, am not, I don't put on a different face or a different demeanor or a different attitude when I go to work. Or when I am singularly one person. And I think that's, a lot of times that surprises people. Um, but I think you have to be that way. And I tell, I tell if you want, do you want a side story on this? Of course. <laughs> this is a good kind of side story because it, it'll juice things up. I won't start drinking. More booze, come on. Well, so I'm a mother of three. And so that, that factors into uh, my job. I can't, I can't extricate the fact that I have three children. Uh, they're now teenagers, so 17, 15, and 12, almost 13. But of course, in other career moments, they've been very young. So very young kids are not nearly as 
predictable or schedulable, and so that, that has been a part of, if you've worked with me, you've known that I'm a mom and the kids are part of the factor. Anyway, long story short, I was, I, I do think one of the things women particularly struggle with is what I would call the superwoman syndrome. Uh, we think we need to be perfect employees, leaders, sisters, daughters, mothers, like perfection is the goal, and any sense of accepting help is not acceptable because that puts a chink in the armor, that means we're not a superwoman, and so and I fell into that trap um, fairly early on. I had three children, a hell of a job, you know, a, a mother and a husband and all sorts of other things, and it's impossible if you don't accept help. But cut to a Saturday where we're having people to dinner, and everyone, all week, I have a full-time nanny who can buy food for me and everything, but I was like, no, 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 no. I must go pick the meat myself, I must go select the cheese myself, nothing could be good enough for our company. So cut to four o'clock on a Saturday, nothing's marinating, nothing's done, I'm running around Whole Foods, I've got two of my three children, and my little boy at the time was sort of five, and I'm like a mad woman with a car, right? And he wasn't keeping up, and so I hoist him on my hip, and so I can go faster, and like, I him broccoli, and like, I just, you know, and he's saying, but mommy, but mommy, I'm like, Jamie, not now, but mommy, but mommy. So finally, he goes, but mommy. He's like, what, Jamie? You're hurting my balls. <laughs> <laughs> and in the middle of the produce section, the entire produce section was like, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, this is not the picture of This is not on high being like the hallway, like, rocking into the office. So the only point I take you around that really is yeah. you've got to be one person, right? I'm, I'm, a, I'm an imperfect person who has the same struggles as anybody else trying to integrate what my children need, what I want to do in my personal life, what I want to do professionally, what I think the team expects of me, what my bosses expect of me. And I think the only, only way to succeed is to singularly be one person and acknowledge that you need help, that it's about the aggregate, that imperfection is fine. There was a great quote yesterday I read on social media that real people aren't perfect and perfect people aren't real. It's mm -hmm. a really good quote, right? Let's just remember that. And I think have a little more patience and understanding with one another that we're all, we're all trying. But, but, but be you. My, my micro message is just be you. I don't know how we got to all reasons. <laughs> 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 um, That's the first thing I got. You're still going to tell that story in 18 as well. You have to have something So, how do you then, because you know that, you know you want to be one person, but how do you make sure your team all know that? How do they appreciate well, you? Well, they don't have any choice. And so, my team, are you? You know, you kind of, you get, well, you kind of, do you think, you know, they're, they're, so let's be a little more serious. They're almost a failure of my judgment. So moments of failure of my judgment, where the agency or the teams get held accountable to that, that feels very real. But all I can do in that moment is honestly say, I'm trying my best, and I'm not perfect, and I'm gonna learn from this, and I want all of us to learn from this. But that's, that's what I would share you know, under the moniker of leadership lessons. Failure isn't a tattoo, it's a bruise. And it's okay to fail. You just have to commit to learning from that so you don't fail again. And that was something that Mutar, you know, my mentor used to say to me. It's okay to fail once at something, it's not okay to fail twice at the same thing. What about decision making? I'm fascinated when it comes to 
actually do fail or you make a mistake, does that impact on decisions that you make in the future? Do you, do you, how do you learn from it and do you ever pull back from changing your mind too often? That, no, that you can't. I mean, what I don't think you can do in failure, if you're not failing, then you're leaving some measure of new thinking or unexplored territory or curiosity undiscovered, in my opinion. It's only when you go to the edge, you're like, oh, it went too far. I think the number one responsibility of leaders is to be curious. If I'm not curious, how will our company grow and explore and change and evolve for what the marketplace wants? So you've got to be curious, and your curiosity can lead you places where it might be more right or more wrong. But that's okay as long as you go, okay, what would I learn from this? Like, you know, what, what am I not going to do? What if I went down that rabbit hole and that got us there? But so as long as you're committed to learning, and gosh, I've worked 28 years, but I still learn things every single day, believe me. Uh, I, I already came to know the answer to this, but I asked it in my So um, leaders now, especially within business and this industry, have a responsibility to try and change the diversity and inclusion quotas and the, the conversation. How do you how do you win that within your own role? Well, I, I think it's absolutely and I think what we've got to be impatient with now is the narrative. Because I mean, everyone's got the narrative now. Like, I can sit here and give you a narrative. It has to be about the actions. So we have to drive to accountability now. You should be asking about 20, how many women have you put in leadership positions? It has to be that point. Not how do you think about diversity and inclusion. How many women, people of color, people with full range of ability or disability, age, sexual orientation, how many of them have you put into leadership roles so that you're creating a wake around you that can't be around one female leader, but it has to be about much more than that. And, and this is a tremendous source of focus and something that I'm fairly proud of. We have put a number of leaders into positions as we've gone through this change that are more diverse leaders. So our head of New York is a woman. Uh, our head of Canada is an Asian man. Uh, we just installed today, our first day in Barcelona, uh, um, a gay woman is leaving our Barcelona office. I mean, again and again and again, I can go around every region where we have installed people who have a much more diverse set of perspectives, right? And I think that's the important thing. This isn't, I'm not trying to check a checklist. What I want to do is make sure that our agency, on behalf of our clients, the word agency comes from agent on behalf of, that's the language of contract. So our agreement with our clients is we are agents on behalf of our clients. If that's the case, we have to know the marketplace. We have to represent this marketplace on behalf of our clients and be able to fully inform them, inform their strategies, inform their work. And I don't believe a group of homogenous people can do that. You have to have that diversity of perspective that then fully represents the marketplace. And so we are not done by a long shot. There's a lot more work to do. But the short answer is, let's start talking in an accountable way about the decisions and leadership placements and changes we're making so that there's an evidence-based discussion now, not just a great narrative. How is having a diverse executive then changed how you manage them then, or manage the business? That's it? Not at all. Not at all. These are fantastic people. I mean, if anything, what you're doing when you're hiring is hiring people that are better than you are. So if anything, it just makes me have to get on my game more, right? And it holds me accountable because I've got this brilliant talent around me 
but I better be on top of my game. There's no slouching. There's plenty of people who take this job if I'm slouching. And I, I think that's great. That's what we should do. Do you ever slouch? <laughs> you may slouch. Okay. <laughs> no comments from the back. <laughs> I do so. No, of course. I'm, I'm, I'm human. I mean, of course I do. Uh, I have absolute moments of imperfection and, and error, and my commitment to the team is that I will live into those, that I will own those, and that I will learn from them, and I won't repeat them, but of course I will do um, Well, we'll take one or two questions from the audience. Would you be okay with that? Of course. But then we'll like to ask a question. Then they look quite shy, though. Oh, okay, I'll get two. We'll take those we'll three. Right, can I ask you to introduce yourself? I'm going to attempt, I don't think I'm going to make over, so you might have to go. Oh. Sorry. Sorry. This is, this is interaction, I like it. <laughs> Sorry about this, I'm cold. Oh, okay, well, it's a, it's a big pop. Okay, let's see if I can word this right. You did say, oh, my name's Anne Brett. You did mention about getting talent. Can you talk about how you keep talent? And then within DNI, how do you keep talent as you raise them up? Thank you. Yeah, so we would say recruit, retain, and advance is my sort of construct on people. So we're trying to recruit the best, we're trying to retain the best, and then we want to advance people inside our organization. Um, I, I don't know that it's different to retain someone who's already in there that you really want or someone that you've recruited that you, that you really want. Retention is retention to me. Um, and, and mostly, that's about our commitment that, number one, we hired you because you're you. And there's no one else in the world that's like you. And when you bring your full self to our office every day, you will join a culture of people and other white-minded people and have the opportunity to do the best work of your career. And that's our commitment, simply stated. And so the responsibility of the leadership team, then, is to make that so. Is our culture and is the work that we're doing in our processes Ways of working. Is that enabling people every day to cross that threshold and feel like they can be their full selves and that they can do the best work of their career? And, that, and those are the two things that I spend the most time thinking about. I think the travesty that happens a lot in recruitment is we look across the table and we say, Anne, you're the best possible person for this job. We have searched high and low. Please come join us, and you come join us, and then somehow you look right or left and see that Stephen's doing something differently, or someone else doing something, and you go, oh, well, maybe I should. I, I think I, I better not. I better leave that piece of myself behind, or I, I shouldn't do that. And then we see that people don't bring their full selves. That's the travesty. It's what I hate. And so I try to constantly remind people: we hired you. At some point, someone on the other side of the table looked at you and said. You're perfect, and I want you here. And then just constantly encouraging people to be their full self, to feel confident in that, to know that the agency wants that, and that this is an environment that you can do that, and do the best work of your career. That's, that's the promise. Now, the, the reason that's so important is, I can just reflect on my own career, perhaps you can reflect on yours. The moments that I felt that I was the most acceptable, the most embraced, the most wanted individually is when I did my best work. Like the, the, the organization fully embraced me and liked me if I was a, you know, a, a sloppy mom with stuff going on and everything else. When I felt like I was fully embraced for who I was, 
I therefore gave my ultimate best. It gave me a channel and a line to do my best work. And so that's the name of the game on retention. Is it different for DNI? I don't think so. I think that's a human feeling. Um, that to, to feel fully embraced and wanted for who you are, and then to know that you have the opportunity to do the best work of your career. I think what you said is, and yeah, I could call that, but also your comment about like minded is very different now. So, not like minded people, it's really broader in what that means. Yeah, so yeah, that's fair enough, fair enough. Not, not homogeneously like minded, but like minded in a set of ideals that this is a place where you and I are distinctly different, but we lean on those differences, we don't resist those differences. And because of those differences, we can do our best work. That's the like-minded connection, like or not, homogenous. You know, the interesting thing, you get asked this a lot, like, I would say our best work comes from the highest tension, right? You know, oh, you got that tension in your office? Yeah, we have tension. We have a lot of tension around the best work. It's a positive tension, it's not a negative tension. And in American parlance, we would say, you play the ball, not the person, right? We're so aggressively trying to play that ball the best possible way for that brand, that we will debate it, we will go back and forth until we get to the best possible solution. And then, once we do, we line up, we're one team, and we're carrying it forward, and we're going forward. But you should never have a creative process that is tension-free. That is another travesty. That is unacceptable. The best part comes from different points of view. That we see it differently, that we debate it, that we wrestle it, that we stress over it. All of those things need to happen to get to the best possible work. So we're not propagating a tension-free environment. We're propagating a creative environment that comes from a positive tension, a positive intent on that tension to get to the best work. That we all then rally around and go, this is the best work of my career. I'm so glad I'm associated with this. Okay, one in front. You have to come all the way to the front, I'm afraid. They have things called wireless mics now. Hello. So tomorrow morning we're here presenting some research on agency well-being. And one of the opening statistics is that 91% of people that work in agencies have suffered with their mental health in the last 12 months, compared to 64% of the general working population. So, as a leader of an agency, do you have a personal take on that? And is there a way that you would like your agency to react to what is obviously a serious problem? It's a very serious problem. Thank you for asking. Um, we have done some of our own analysis and understanding on this also. Um, from your accent, I assume you're familiar with England. Um, Adam Eve in our network is leading the way on this. They actually have and trained internally people on mental health awareness. Uh, and they are now sort of coaches, I don't want to say anything more than a coach, but they are much as you would in an emergency situation where there are people who coach you to leave a building and it's on fire, and that they know, they know the, the basic protocols on mental awareness, and there are people that can be anonymously contacted if you need help. And we've just brought it to the front of Awareness, I think, to at the root of your question is are we aware that this is a problem or are we just sort of carrying on? It is at the front of our awareness now, and Adam and have actually sort of acted on, done some training, done some protocol setting inside the agency to get in front of as much as we can and help find solutions for in partnership with obviously an external agency and, and firm who are practitioners mental health. 
so that you, we can do early awareness, early coaching, help support, and then connect to this outside firm that are the practitioners. But that is something that I think all agencies have looked at. This is, you know, my creative partner, Ari Weiss, says this is a business that's harder or harder. Um, and so in a business that's either harder or harder, I think it is not surprising, unfortunately, the numbers that you say, because it is by your starting point is hard. And so it's a fair, fair observation, and within it, request, ask, demand, requirement, that we address that, and, and we are. And I think we probably need to do more. Um, but it's certainly, it's very real, and we are absolutely aware of that. I'm going to have to bring this to a close, but I'm going to ask my last question. Um, I always want to know what is the one leadership lesson that you wish you knew earlier in your career that you've learned now? I thought you read it to me in advance. I'm slouching, see? Um, it usually comes in, what's the best form of advice you've got? So I got that answer. Um, the one I wish I knew earlier. Um, So the advice I got when I was uh, about 26 uh, from a woman who's about 20 years older than I was at the time, and I was working with her closely, she was a fantastic in-office kind of mentor, and she said, you know, people are going to say really nice things about you, you're going to do well in your career, and I was 26, I didn't know, you, you've, got, you've got the makings of doing well, and there'll be a lot of nice things that are said about you, but my number one piece of advice to you is to never believe your own press. Because if you do, you'll buy into it and then you'll stop you. And that piece of advice has stuck with me for the duration of my career. And I, you know, to this day, I like to think that I would be considered a fairly hardworking CEO. That I don't just live into the privilege of this role, but I really definitely live into the pressure of this role. And that every day, my head is down focus on the things that need to be focused on. And I think that was, it was such wonderful, and it has stayed with me 22 years later. I think it's really, really important advice, because today's headlines tomorrow are just yesterday's news, right? It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. And so we, we, we have to, I, I'm so much more interested in what's ahead of me from a career perspective than what I've done today and before now. But, so that was the best piece of advice. I'm still, I'm still cogitating on your, um, what I wish I knew. We'll, we'll do that another time. Okay. <laughs> we'll, do, we'll do a sequel to this. Loads more lessons.